This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I had Ben Eltham from New Matilda join me to talk about federal politics, as well as the upcoming Victorian state election and the different positions of the parties. Then, ABC veteran journalist Kerry O'Brien joined me in the studio to talk about his memoir. We also spoke about the stories behind his greatest interviews, his views on the leadership spills and the changing media landscape. Then finally, Meg Lebrum, General Manager of Collections and Access at the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia, joined me to talk about their exhibition, Heath Ledger, A Life in Pictures, which is now showing until the 10th of February 2019. Yes, this is Uncommon Sense on 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins and I'm pleased to have with me in the studio, back from Marking Hell, Ben Eltham. Well, I'm pleased to be here, Amy. It's good to have you back. Yes, thank you, thank you. Welcome. And uh, how are you going in general? Going well, mate. Yeah. Yeah, pretty good. Awesome. Now, I was just saying um, I had a, a great Canberra experience, so I'm feeling like I've soaked up enough federal politics in me to last for probably the next few months, which is great. I dined in the parliamentary Melbourne uh, members' dining room. Ooh. Yep, looking out on the roof over across to the War Memorial. So I also feel suitably insider to understand the mind of a politician. Did you get a nice wine there as well? I hear they have was, a very nice wine collection. They have a very nice everything collection, ah, Ben. Yes, yeah, right, yes. I, and very nice uh, plates with a beautiful, you know, coat of arms, and it's it's yep. everything's good. I actually said no to the alcohol because it was lunchtime. And I thought, I don't want to fall asleep. Well, that's not very parliamentary of you, Amy. I know, I know. You've found me out. Did I'm... you pick up a prime ministerial <laughs> mug? That's very important. I did, yeah. I did. Who, and yeah. who was it? Um, Paul Keating. Paul Keating. Who yep. else? Yep. Um, yeah, I couldn't bring myself to get anyone from the modern age, really, except in the 90s like and, be, and prior. You didn't go for a John Howard mug? Um, resisted, just, <laughs> just. Um, no, I, I went around and looked at all the portraits again for the millionth time and uh, and I was just struck again by how fantastic the Gough Whitlam portrait is. So different from all the others, you know, and his eyebrows are just so striking. They are sculptural almost yeah. in their wavy form. And it was so dark and black, these eyebrows just sticking out in, you know, <laughs> in front of the painting. It made me think of John Howard and who, had, who wore it better, which eyebrows? And I think Gough wins. I'd agree with you there. Good. I like it. We're on the same page. Um, and yes, well, we, I'm speaking later on with Kerry O'Brien, who worked for Gough Whitlam for a few years as his press secretary. So that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I'll definitely put that one on later on. That, that looks like a really good interview, mate. Oh, I had the best time and, uh, and got some really interesting insights from him, which I have not heard before. So that was also really good. Yeah, good one. Yeah. So let's get on to all the things that we must discuss today, particularly um, let's get the federal politics out of the way and then we can end on the state politics given it's, sure. uh, you know, people need to lead into Saturday with a fresh mind of all the different Ooh, fresh uh, mind. policy options. Okay. The buffet available to them from yes, the various parties. <laughs> it is getting more and more like a buffet <laughs> every day. Um, it's interesting though because of pre-polling, you know, when these policies are announced... 
Yeah, so pre-polling has been going on for more than a week now. So I imagine there's been a lot of votes cast already. Exactly. Um, Anyway, let's get to federal politics. Now, there's something um, happening, well, there's a lot of things happening, but there's something that just won't go away and it's getting a little bit annoying. And it's this random thought bubble that was announced that we've spoken about before during the um, Wentworth by-election where there was this grand plan that was probably took all of five minutes to come up with uh, and wasn't consulted and put through any kind of process around moving the embassy in Israel um, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And this issue has now become an issue in Asia whilst our Prime Minister Scott Morrison is over at two very key summits in Asia, particularly ASEAN and APEC. And we've seen um, this major trade deal, which is supposedly one of their key platforms at the moment, their key policy that they're proud to be putting through because there aren't many other policies that they are currently pursuing, and that is an Indonesia-Australia free trade agreement. And we've now seen this essentially put off put on the back burner by the Indonesian government and also the Malaysian government come out and say, um, you know, this is not okay. And uh, and then we've seen our coalition government ministers, including Prime Minister Scott Morrison, saying, well, we won't be dictated to uh, in terms of our foreign policy and we will put this through the proper cabinet process and all particular... um, you know, consequences will be considered. Uh, so they're trying. They're basically, I guess, doing it backwards. Well, it's a mess, basically. I mean, as we've talked about a few times. Yeah, we had the APEC conference in Port Moresby this week. Um, notable, I think, for uh, a couple of things. Firstly, the flap over the embassy, which the government's yet to be able to hose down, owing to their consistent <laughs> inability mm. to really to come up with a proper position on it. And they wedged themselves there. They oh, didn't absolutely well and truly. Yeah. Um, Probably more importantly at the APEC conference was a pretty big geopolitical moment where we had the first time in the history of APEC that the major powers were unable to agree. And Mm. so normally they sign a communique at the end of the conference and this time around they couldn't sign one because the US and China were at loggerheads over their trade uh, issues. So the US and China are fighting a trade war. For those of you who don't follow the economic news, it's it's heating up. Um, There's been some pretty big tariffs slapped on imports from both of those countries on each other. Uh, and it's costing both the Chinese and the US economy pretty big. Mm. Um, and um, so because of that, uh, they weren't getting on particularly well. And, of course, this is in the, this is all background to a uh, heating up of tensions in the South China Sea, a noticeable cooling of relationships between the US and China. Uh, and, and I think nothing short of a panic within Australia's defence and security establishment over the rise of China. Hmm. Um, and we saw during the APEC conference Australia announce a naval base on Manus Island that Australia and the US would jointly collaborate on a new Pacific naval base uh, on Manus. So that's a big geopolitical development. And the embassy flap sort of comes as a a little coda to this, if you like. It's the ridiculous following the sublime, um, whereby the Morrison's government yet again is failing to come up with a position or decide what it wants to do with this embassy thing. That they brought up. That they themselves brought up. Yes, surprisingly. Um, you mentioned there the base, which is big news in the sense that, uh, you know, well, it's another 
spot where America can settle themselves and be even closer to the South China Sea. And, um, you know, I remember my interview with John Pilger uh, about his documentary, The Coming War on China. And his point was, and there's this excellent book called Base Nation, which basically shows a whole map and talks about all the different US bases, military bases surrounding China and the South China Sea. And it really does look like I mean, just millions and millions of dots almost. Like, visually, it's quite stunning. There's not millions of bases, but it just looks like, you know, they're basically surrounded on all sides by US military uh, presence, which certainly wasn't the case to that extent 20 years ago. It's only been kind of just continually, continually ramping up and ramping up. Well, that's right, Amy. Um, The ramp-ups come from both sides. Uh, China's built a number of bases on the islands in the South China Sea. So it's even turned pretty insignificant coral atolls Mm. into major air and naval bases. Runways. Runways um, with surface-to-air missile installations and um, deep water ports Mm. for the Navy. Um, And the US is now responding to it. Of course, the US has a major base at Guam, uh, Pacific Island of Guam, where they base B-52s and big bombers and a lot of the Air Force. Um, And so this new naval base, which presumably will be at Lorengau at Manus, um, will be, you know, a major new installation in the South Pacific. Mm. Uh, And I think that the significance of this is basically that it shows that that there's a kind of a new Cold War developing in in the Pacific um, and, and... Australia's been sucked into it. There's no doubt about it. And the Australian foreign policy establishment is pretty hawkish. So if, Mm. like me, you like to read the foreign policy blogs, things like the Australian Strategic Policy Institute blog, uh, the Aspie strategist, uh, they've been banging on about China now for years Mm. and they're really worried. Uh, The Lowy Institute's pretty hawkish on China and, you know, a lot of the academics are also pretty hawkish on China and that feeds into the policy boffins and the behind the scenes stuff. And I, I think it's really worrying. You know, Australia's basically taken sides of the US now um, in what is developing into a, a pretty hostile environment um, in the waters to our north. Well, it's dangerous because we have uh, Donald Trump as president and, you know, any kind of escalation can seemingly happen out of nowhere based on his level of um, level-headedness, which is probably extremely low. Yes, I mean, Trump's obviously a wild card. No one knows what he's going to do. But uh, this predates Trump. Uh, Obama had mm. the so-called pivot, pivot to, Asia. Uh, to Asia. So, um, you know, this is a part of a long-term realignment between the great powers that Australia's absolutely a bit part player in. And this is going to determine, really, the, f- the next generation of Australia's national security issues. It's a far more important and a bigger problem than any issues relating to terrorism. Mm. And Scott Morrison, uh, last week before these summits came out and talked about the fact that we need to realign our interests with the Pacific region and be closer to our neighbours surrounding us. I mean, we've seen the foreign aid budget cut and cut. Do you think that there's going to be any change on that? It's really hard to know with the Morrison government because it's very hard to take anything Scott Morrison says seriously. You know, and... 
I mean, we always say that about politicians, don't we? We yes, always say, we do. you know, we can't take them seriously. <laughs> but um, but this is particularly true but for seriously, them. But seriously, we can't take them seriously. It's particularly true of the Morrison government in this late phase of its death throes where it's mm. just thrashing around looking for a thought bubble to thought bubble to try and announce something or other to, to desperately pull itself back into contention. Uh, you know, even just this morning, Morrison's made a major announcement about cutting back Australia's migration intake. Um, and he's he's couching that in explicitly population terms. He's saying Australia needs a lower migration intake because, you know, the cities are too crowded, the traffic's too full, um, you know, the schools are full, so on and so forth. Mm. Um, that looks like a prelude to what could be quite a nasty election campaign where the, the coalition's been signalling for a few weeks now that they look like they want to run a race campaign where they're going to overtly talk about Muslim immigration, for example. Uh, so, you know, I think there are uncharted waters ahead for Australia because uh, this is a desperate government. Uh, they've shown that they'll make desperate decisions with not a lot of consultation or common sense even. And so I expect more of this kind of crazy policy making on the run to continue. Yes. Um, well, that's why we did actually see Peter Dutton when he put his name forward to be Prime Minister that this was one of his core issues as well was population and immigration um, so it's certainly something that the right of the party has been pushing for in the background and the foreground for a while absolutely amy this is a, an issue that is held dear by the right of the liberal party and it i think it underlines the radicalization of the right of the liberal party you know this is this is par for the course for a wing of the liberal party that's very comfortable talking to right-wing US supremacists, you know, in fact, white supremacists like Lauren Southern, mm. you know, Milo Yiannopoulos. These are people who've travelled to Australia and met with senior Liberal politicians on the right. Um, and, you know, you only have to turn on Sky News after dark um, and you'll see a cavalcade of talking heads mouthing these uh, fairly nasty sentiments. So um, this stuff's not going away. Mm. Well, I think it's true, though, that uh, there is a, a huge issue with our investment in infrastructure and public hospitals and education. That's absolutely true. But it's not necessarily true that just because you cut migration suddenly all of our services are going to be freed up. I think these are quite different. You need to approach them in a different manner and actually start investing in things that are old, run down, um, not sufficient. Absolutely, Amy. I mean, uh, you have to separate the issue of the provision of services for the public from the number of people who live here. Now, obviously, if more people come to this country, we need to have more infrastructure. Um, and you only have to look at the Victorian state election and see how much infrastructure the yes. Andrews government is embarking upon to see the issues at play here. Um, but it's also the case that over the course of really a generation, the state governments in particular have run down their public infrastructure. They've failed to invest in schools and roads and hospitals to the degree that it is needed, particularly mm. in public transport, particularly in schools. Uh, and now they're reaping the, the whirlwind, if you like. Um, and so, um, you know, um, I really like Dr Liz Allen from ANU on this kind of stuff. She's a population demographer. And she makes the point very, very consistently that the number of people coming into the country is only one subset of a broader problem, mm. which is planning and which is infrastructure. And we haven't planned well at all in this country. We've largely let the market rip when it comes to decisions around housing, 
when it comes to decisions around energy, when it comes to decisions around even in education and health. Um, and as a result of that, we've had a largely unplanned growth in our major cities, Sydney and Melbourne, mm. and, and now they're feeling pretty squeezy. And the reason is we haven't invested. Exactly. That's so true. And now let's talk a little bit about some of the other things that have been happening, perhaps not have been you know, making major headlines, but are still extremely important. Um, we've spoken on this show to Joy DeMusi about uh, the Australian Research Council grants that were vetoed by the former Education Minister Simon Birmingham, presumably on the basis of their titles, which were, they were humanities topics and appearingly uh, not relevant in, in his view to the national interest. Uh, we've now seen another development in this issue, Ben. Where are we at? Yes, yeah, so um, we did talk about how the government had vetoed a series of ARC grants, um, vetoed in secret, by the way, yes. and then they only emerged in Senate estimates that that these grants had been vetoed by the former Education Minister, Simon Birmingham. The new Education Minister, Dan Tian, has decided to double down on that decision, essentially. So in the wake of the criticism, widespread criticism, particularly by the universities of the government's decision there, the government has basically uh, pulled its head in and said, okay, well, we're going to look at all the grants now. Um, we're going to have a national interest test on the research grants. And, in fact, as a result of that, they've held over the current round of ARC grants, which I understand is sitting on the minister's desk. Mm while they work out whether to impose a national interest test on this latest round, which hasn't been announced yet, something like $300 million in research grants. And that's a big deal in the university sector. And it's a big deal because a lot of people are relying on these grants or even just waiting on the decision about whether they got a grant to plan 2019. Mm. So Their um, career, their job. Their entire career yeah. and their massive, massive career things. So if you get one of these grants... Um, it's really make or break for a lot of researchers. It's the difference between them maybe moving overseas and looking for a job overseas or even leaving academia altogether mm. or being funded for the next three years and going on and doing some amazing work. So um, you can imagine the, um, the disquiet in the sector to have these grants held over um, and really a lot of people in limbo. So, And I should declare, by the way, while we're talking yeah. about that I have one of those grants currently in contention that is being well we don't know the the result of it so mm. just for full disclosure, full disclosure i should say that i'm also waiting on one of those <laughs> as and that's a good point many many people are lots and lots of people yeah, yeah. yeah. and they're also looking at well they've basically delayed the opening of the new round so that yeah. you won't even be able to apply for the next round until some time into the future yeah and, and the flow-on consequences for that are really really big so it's not just the 300 million it cascades through the whole sector, particularly mm. the bigger universities that are research intensive. Um, there's a whole bunch of decisions that they can't make until they know the outcome of these grants. Uh, just to take my own example, if I get my grant, I won't be available to teach next year and indeed for three years. So um, that's a decision my head of department has to make. Uh, he wants to obviously work out the timetables mm. for next year to work out whether I can teach. So, uh, you know, imagine all those decisions cascading through the rest of the university sector. Adding to that the uncertainty, the political uncertainty about whether grants will just start to get vetoed now because the minister doesn't like the look of them. You know, what sort of grants will not meet the national interest test? Will it be grants 
based about you know research outside australia will be yeah. will it be grants about things the government doesn't believe in politically like climate change or muslim immigration you know what sort of things will the government veto from now on we don't know mm. we still haven't had a proper explanation from simon birmingham about why he vetoed the grants back in the day so yeah there's a lot of disquiet in the in the universities right now about this stuff yeah and concern around research that doesn't necessarily have a clear-cut practical outcome immediately there's you know so many instances of research scientific or humanities whereby we don't know what the outcome of the research will be and how they'll be applied but they can end up being exceptionally important to society in a range of ways but that's only known until after it's been undertaken yeah by definition you don't know the impact of research until you've done the mm. research you know and um you know, people can bring up any number of examples through history of seemingly obscure research that has completely changed the world around us. You know, from um, Einstein, who was actually working as a patents clerk while he was working on his major papers on relativity. Uh, if you think about um, some of the major biological discoveries of the 20th century, uh, many of those, for example, take the MRI machine, which yeah. I know that you've had a few scans of yep. over the last few years. Um, the MRI machine, the wonderful, amazing machine that can peer inside your body. It's very that, creepy. That comes from research that was originally extremely obscure, pure research mm. into the magnetic resonance of... Uh, the inside of atoms, actually. It's, that's why it's called nuclear magnetic resonance. Okay, so pure physics yep. led to this incredibly important medical breakthrough years mm. later. You know, so this is just the example. You know, if you take the serendipity out of research, yep. you're actually potentially limiting amazing discoveries down the track. That's exactly right and very well put. A good example there, Ben. Yes, you're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. And uh, I have with me Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. And we've been discussing federal politics and now we're on to state politics, Victorian state politics, because the election is to be held this Saturday. And uh, Ben, there's so much going on with this and it's very, very, very important. Well, it is, obviously, because uh, the states, the states and territories run a really big part of the country. You know, the states are responsible for most of the service delivery. They're responsible for the schools, roads, hospitals, uh, urban planning. Um, a lot of the, the most important stuff that goes on, really, is mm. done at a state level. So the Andrews government, the Labor government of Daniel Andrews here in Victoria, is up for re-election. They've been in for four years and they're going for another term. And it's really close. That's, the, I think, the most important thing to say. Uh, it's line ball. I think it's too close to call. Mm. Uh, the polls that we've seen um, have the Andrews government slightly ahead, uh, but there really only needs to be a small swing, particularly out in the marginal seats in the suburbs, to deliver Matthew Guy, uh, the government for the Liberal Party. So um, that could be really interesting. The other thing to point out is that the upper house in Victoria has, is going to have, I think, probably a pretty crazy crossbench. Um, it'll be like the Senate. Um, and it's unlikely that the Andrews government will hold the balance of power in the upper house, so they'll have to negotiate with one or more or dozens of, of independents and minor party MPs up there as well. 
Exactly. Now, Anthony Green has published a guide to the Legislative Council, which is the upper house, and uh, I've pinned it to my Get Shortened Twitter profile so that anyone who would like to know about the Legislative Council and how you can vote below the line without numbering from one to a hundred and something, uh, you can actually just vote one to five. And you can also, if you so desire, vote one, two, whatever. You can keep going after five until you want to stop. And that is one way in which you can control where your preferences go and stop uh, minor party preference deals that have been made whereby, and it's it's quite shocking really, someone with 0.3% of the vote can and most likely will be elected uh, into the upper house because of these preference deals if you vote above the line. So um, it's an important thing to point out that 94% of Victorians last uh, time in the election voted above the line. Um, They're trying to make it easier by only needing to vote one to five below the line. And I just think it's such a critical way of controlling and exercising your democratic right to have your choice and preferences directed where you want them to go, not where the party you vote for chooses them for them to go. Yeah, absolutely. I always vote below the line. I like to number every box, as Same. crazy as that sounds. Um, you know, I'm in favour of more democracy rather than less democracy. But um, uh, there are some fascinating races uh, in the upper house in Victoria. So, uh, for example, in one of the northern region seats, you've got Fiona Patton going up against uh, the Greens and the Victorian Socialist Stephen Jolly, the uh, local councillor from Richmond, has got, I think, an excellent chance of being Victoria's well, the first socialist for a very long time um, to be elected into the Victorian Parliament. Um, That's a very interesting race. Uh, Mm. There's a swag of right-wing or special interest minor parties, including a kind of traffic party um, that seems to be related to the cab drivers. Um, You've got the shooters and fishers, of course. Um, Mm. They they may well hold the balance of power, actually. The Uh, Aussie Battlers Party. The Aussie Battlers Party, likely to pick up votes on its name alone. Uh, And who knows how the preferences will play out. Uh, I mean, we know who's preference too, but we don't know who's going to come ahead of who, and Mm. therefore we don't know how the decks of cards are going to fall. Yeah, but it is so important. So I wish and I hope that anyone could take the extra 10 seconds to to number at least one to five. Absolutely. Okay, let's talk about the lower house now. Yeah. Many intriguing racings going on in the lower house. Um, here, close to us in Triple R in Brunswick, we've got an interesting race there with the Greens looking to take that seat off Labor um, with uh, the move of Jane Garrett from the lower house to the upper house. Um, That could potentially give the Greens another lower house MP. However, I expect Sam Hibbins to lose his seat um, of Paran, probably to the Liberals. Um, So the Greens will probably just end up with the same number of MPs. Um, If Labor loses enough seats out in the suburbs, particularly down towards Mordialic Way, down on the Frankston line, Um, We could be looking at a hung parliament or with the Greens holding the balance of power and needing to govern with Labor in coalition. Mm. That would be very, very interesting for Labor because Daniel Andrews has ruled out governing in coalition with the Greens. He says the Greens have a toxic culture and he's very opposed to the Greens. Um, I think that'll be very interesting indeed if time comes when he has to make a decision about whether he wants to hold government or not. Yeah. and probably shouldn't have come out with that. I, I know he was trying to say, give us your primary vote, but I'm not sure how convincing it would have been. 
Well, he went a lot further than saying give us your primary vote. What he well, said that was, was the intention. Yeah. What he said was, I won't govern with the Greens. And yes. I think that's quite interesting because even if he doesn't formally sign an agreement with the Greens, um, he may well rely on the Greens' votes to uh, maintain confidence in the lower house. Mm. So um, there's a lot to play for. Of course, Labor's running very strongly on their legacy. They've invested a lot in transport, particularly in the level crossings removals. They've built schools. They've built hospitals. They've invested in public services. They're running a budget surplus. It's a a strong record, actually. Um, it is a strong record. The Liberal opposition of Matthew Guy, however, has run an, a pretty strong campaign on law and order. Now, whether you believe in that, that there's actually a law and order problem in Victoria or not, the polls say that voters do believe that there's a problem, and Guy has been vocal in his uh, in his policies there. And so has Daniel Andrews, though. Yep. He has been equal to that task and has really, um, you know, in terms of the civil liberties groups, uh, made them quite angry about the fact of, like, making our legislation, crime legislation, a lot harsher. Yeah, Andrews has been pretty tough on crime too. Mm. Um, And, you know, I think that's the irony of this whole race. Of course, you can never beat the Liberals in a race to the bottom on these kind of issues. And that, and so uh, Matthew Guy's been strident. And, and some of his policies, by the way, are worth noting. I mean, he's pretty much going to abandon bail as such um, if he's elected. Um, there'll no longer be case-by-case bail um, if, if Matthew Guy's elected. And that, that could fill up. Victoria's jails. In fact, that will lead to, I think, disastrous overcrowding in the jails and remand centres. Mm. So that's potentially a very interesting policy. Um, you know, the uh, the other thing, of course, that um, that people are talking about is immigration, and, and so guys said that he's going to basically try and convince the federal government to cut back on migration as well. He also wants to invest in fast rail. Um, it's really interesting campaign. It's hard to know to what degree the various messages are cutting through. We yeah. don't have a lot of polling. It's a very regional race. You know, it's a very very different electorate, say in the inner suburbs of Melbourne, where it's mm. really a race between Labor and the Greens, and. T- compared to out in the suburbs you know the the key marginals are places like Cranbourne like Pakenham like Mordialic you know all of those suburbs um, have seen strong growth they've got pretty bad traffic problems you know there's a lot of disgruntled voters who might well just be prepared to turf the government out because they're not happy and that's what Andrews I think is is worried about and he has every right to be worried about it Labor insiders that I've talked to say that it's line ball. It's Mm. too close to call. They don't know. Um, It's on a knife edge. This is very scary, Ben. Ben, I said I want to talk about health, and that is one of the key platforms for Labor and obviously the Liberals who need to compete on this platform. It's one of the key services that the state government delivers alongside education. Um, And one of the things that they first announced was uh, at their campaign launch, uh, a Royal Commission into Mental Health. And this was very much welcomed by the mental health sector because it has been chronically underfunded at the state level as well as uh, the federal level. Yeah, that's one I think that could be quite significant. So if we cast our minds back to the Royal Commission into Family Violence uh, that the Andrews government held, that was a very significant Royal Commission and it led to major policy reform and a huge injection of funding 
into family violence. And I think the mental health lobby or the mental health sector thinks that there's some chance that the same could happen for mental health. Mm. Now, we know that mental health is underfunded. It's not taken seriously in many respects in terms of health policy. Um, It's still not articulated properly. You know, as is often the case with health policy, the various bits of the health system don't link up properly. People fall through the gaps. There's inadequate treatment for people, particularly people who are suicidal or psychotic. Yeah. Uh, you know, the list goes on. So, yeah, I absolutely support the Royal Commission. I think that's a great idea. It's um, a brilliant idea. Yeah. Um, and some of the other really important items um, that have been announced are new hospitals, which are desperately needed, um, really much. Like I, I can't even emphasise how much they're needed based on um, my experiences with public hospitals recently. Uh, Labor has pledged a new $1.5 billion hospital for Footscray as well as money for a hospital in Melton. They're also creating a women's and children's hospital in Geelong. In The, new, the previous Geelong private hospital will now be a public hospital for women. Um, it's also promised separate children's emergency departments in Ge- Geelong, Maroondah, Frankston, Casey and Northern Hospital hospitals. Um, They're expanding access to low-fee IVF services, which we know is very, very hard to access if you don't have a lot of money. Um, And the coalition, on the other hand, uh, they are trying to match um, some of the things by promising a new hospital for Warrigal in West Gippsland and an upgrade to the Maryborough Hospital, but uh, they haven't really come very close in terms of the same kind of focus and resourcing that the Labor Party have put into hospitals and health. Oh, no, it's chalk and cheese there yeah. on health policy. Um, and also it comes from, you know, the four years, 2010 to 2014, where, uh, you know, under Bailey you uh, particularly there were big cuts to, to health and hospitals, very large cuts mm. to the, the health budget in Victoria. Uh, and so Labor's been repairing a fair bit of that damage and now it wants to invest. You know, I, I have to say hospitals aren't always the answer, Amy. You know, if you really want to make a difference to health in the long term, you have to do public health and population and preventative health. Mm. Um, but obviously we need new hospitals, we need more health services, so that's good. Well, you um, need to be able to triage the people who have a health problem so you can get them in and out of hospital if they're not needed to stay. Yep, all of that. You know, you need again, you need the system to link up with itself so that people mm. don't get left waiting on ambulance, you know, ambulance gurneys, you know, which has happened. Um, so I think actually Andrews has to have has to get a fair bit of credit for solving the ambulance crisis. If you if you remember back a few years, yes, we had ambulances ramping up to the doors of emergency wards. Yeah, um, he's basically people waiting in corridors, yep. not even getting a bed. Yeah. And, and that's, a, that's a function not just of a lack of resources but also of poor planning and, mm. you know, bad management. And, and so I think they've solved a few of those problems. I mean, you know, health is this giant kind of machine and it's really hard for patients inside the machine to really understand how it works um, and it's hard to get people interested in health policy. But um, it, it's Well, it's important though because you're dead if you're not healthy. <laughs> It is important. It's kind of important. It is a life or death thing, absolutely. So, yeah, so I think very, very different uh, policy portfolios from the two major parties there. Mm. And the one thing I thought was interesting to mention is that uh, the Liberal Party always seemed to have a problem with women voters. Um, 
Matthew Guy certainly isn't all that attractive in his um, pitch to women in general. And uh, one of the things that they announced early on that they that was meant to win over the women voters, and I just cannot believe is a thing, is that uh, the coalition want to make the contraceptive pill ab- available over the counter at pharmacies. And that is if you have had any prescription by a GP at any point in time uh, in the recent times, you can just go to a chemist and get another prescription. I mean, GPs already give repeat prescriptions for contraceptive pills well into the future that you only need to be reviewed once a year at the max uh, to get contraception. The thing I think is very really reckless which they probably don't realize because they're not doctors and may not have consulted with health professionals is the fact that the contraceptive pill causes clotting it increases pre-existing clotting conditions and causes new clotting and it can lead to things like stroke and pulmonary embolism which happen not just in older people but younger people so this is one example where it's not a good idea to have policy on the run and uh, use it as a marketing tool rather than think about the real implications yeah, I mean, I would like to see the evidence based on that decision. You know, I'm not qualified, I think, to, to really comment on the, the the merits of that of that policy. Well, the, the doctors have, and they've said it's not good. Yeah. Well, yeah. that wouldn't surprise me at all, because we know that the Liberal Party doesn't have a very big commitment to evidence-based policymaking um, in really any field, uh, particularly energy. Mm. Uh, but this is another good example. Oh, let's mention energy quickly. Yeah. Okay, so that's a, another a big, big difference, difference between the major parties. Yeah. Uh, the Labor Party is committed to a 50% Victorian renewable energy target, a VRET, that will mean a massive increase in renewable energy and heaps more investment, particularly in wind farms out in the regions. Mm. And these are having a major impact actually on employment, particularly up in the Grampians. Um, A lot of jobs going into places like Stall and Ararat because of these wind farms. Uh, The Victorians, uh, the Liberals in Victoria um, are following their federal colleagues and they want more coal. (laughs) So they've committed to building a new power plant which they say they're technology agnostic about, um, but which they strongly hinting want to be coal. Um, and, of course, uh, this the, the the bigger picture here, of course, is climate change yes. and the fact that the energy grid is decarbonising rapidly. So I think mm. that's a major difference between the two policies. And another there. major difference is that the Liberal Party has no environment policy yet still. Uh, we're waiting for one to come out and that's also uh, a real problem and uh, one of the issues that is an issue overall in all of these parties is native forest logging and protection of our native forests because it contributes a very important amount to our access to clean water, clean air, many other things. Um, One thing I did notice, which is a new announcement, and I think it's relevant to our listeners because uh, I spoke with Ed Hill from the Goongarra Environment Centre only last week, and we were talking about uh, the East Gippsland Forest, which is you know, parts of it are absolutely pristine. Um, and the Labor Andrews government has announced that they will establish a Sea to Summit forest trail in East Gippsland. Um, that's one step towards valuing forests. But that said, environmentalists have highlighted the fact that logging is occurring on either side of the trail. Yeah, the Andrews government has remained committed to logging um, and they still want us to log. Um, and so obviously so do the Liberals. Yes. Um, so both the major parties are still There's committed no to logging yeah. in Melbourne's catchment, which is a kind of crazy decision in my opinion. But that said, the Liberals want to increase logging and reduce the regulations that already exist so that there can be more. 
and to log in habitats where the Leadbeater's possum uh, currently resides and increase that logging. Yep, and that's one major policy difference between them and the Greens, who of course want to establish a great forest national park that would cover a, a lot of the, um, the the mountain ash forest to Melbourne's north and, and northeast. Mm. So that's a big difference. I mean, just on the logging, I don't understand the commitment to logging in 2018. Um, there's only a few hundred jobs involved there. Um, You know, the time has come to realise, just on pure economic utilitarian principles, that the the welfare of the broader Melbourne drinking water catchment is more important than a few people's logging jobs. Exactly. Um, And, Ben, just finishing out on this, uh, we've seen a few things. Matthew Guy um, and his planning record has not been, um, I guess, front and centre in this campaign, but it is a really dire record. And if anyone cares about the heritage of their city, let alone just, um, you know, logical planning, they might want to reconsider. Well, it's a really good point, actually, Amy. So Matthew Guy was the planning minister 2010 to 2014, and really he made a lot of the worst decisions that have resulted in the higgledy-piggledy skyline of Melbourne today. Mm. So they called him Sky High Guy because he called in pretty much any planning decision he could and gave it a green light. He gave it a big tick. Um, and that led to some disastrous planning decisions. Probably the most notorious was the Fisherman's Bend development, which is a new suburb of 40,000 people. He didn't even manage to organise any land for a school. Okay? So there was no public transport organised and no land for school. And the property developers made off like bandits, but there was no provision for public services or infrastructure. Now, that's a major important issue, I think, for the person who wants to be the new Premier of Victoria. Uh, you know, at the very time he's saying that he wants to take back control, he wants to do better infrastructure and, and you know, uh, decrease the amount of people coming to Melbourne, you know, we need to recognise that many of the worst decisions that were made four years ago mm. that have led to the unplanned growth that we have today were because of Matthew Guy. Exactly. And uh, one other thing that I think is important to mention is to check the preference deals on the upper house and the lower house in particular as well, because there's an example we've just seen in the seat of Bunanyong where the Liberal Party has preferenced second an independent candidate that is pro-gay conversion therapy. So there are many things where you may not realise that because that candidate is listed as independent or it has a party you've never heard of, like a minor party name that seems quite uh, benign like the Transport Matters Party but you need to look into what these minor parties stand for before you vote one uh, above the line. Well, Amy, you could look into that very carefully or you could, of course, uh, vote in the preference of your own order, or the order of your own preference, sorry. Well, I'm, that's I'm what saying. I'm saying. Yeah. Take yeah. control. Yeah. Take back control, as Matthew Guy would say, and exactly. uh, vote below the line. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, and if you want to know any more about all these policy areas, the ABC has put together a guide for uh, the key differences on the parties and what their platforms are, and I've posted that to my Get Shortened and we'll retweet it on Uncommon Sense too. So... Use, uh, you know, that kind of evidence from our public broadcasters and uh, I hope that you can make an informed decision on Saturday. Yeah, and I'll be writing about the Victorian election this week and on Saturday night for New Matilda. Fantastic. So keep an eye out for Ben Eltham on Twitter as well. It's at Ben Eltham. Thanks for coming in, Ben, to talk about federal and state politics. Well, that was a big one, Amy. It was, but I think it's pretty important. So, yeah. Thank you. 
You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. And you're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins in Melbourne. And I'm absolutely delighted to have with me in the studio today Kerry O'Brien, who is uh, the winner of six Walkley Awards, including a gold Walkley for leadership in journalism. He has had a career that spanned over 50 years as a journalist, uh, predominantly in television and also in print. And uh, he was the host, the inaugural host of Late line for six years, the host of 7.30 Report for 15 years and the host of Four Corners for five years. And uh, I welcome Kerry now. Hi there. Amy, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm pretty good. Yeah, you are doing a pretty um, big tour for this book, which is Kerry O'Brien, A Memoir. And um, I really like the way that you've approached this book, which is to talk about your life through your career and also through history and the way that you've witnessed history. And um, you talk about the fact that you were born in 1945, which is at the end of World War II, and therefore you've really witnessed this key post-World War II period, particularly the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Then, of course, so many prime ministers have come and gone in that time so many opposition leaders and uh, and other leaders. We've seen quite a lot of churn. And so naturally this book is quite long. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, um, the other big um, uh, element of the post-war years, of course, is, uh, is the digital transformation uh, throughout the world. Um, and, uh, and working as a journalist, particularly in broadcasting, really I've been in the eye of the storm. I mean, many people have been in the eye of various storms uh, because this is an age that's utterly unprecedented. Change uh, is taking place in an incredibly rapid and intense way mm. to a point where uh, the one thing we really know with any certainty uh, is that the, that pace of change is only going to get faster. It's become harder and harder for us to predict the future and therefore plan for it. And I think sometimes the defence position uh, of politicians is therefore not to talk about it much at all, other than in very broad general terms, when in fact there's a huge debate to be had on a number of fronts. Mm, That's an excellent point. And it reminds me of a very particular debate that highlights this around uh, the NBN the National Broadband Mm. Network. And we saw uh, Kevin Rudd come out with a very audacious program to create fibre to the premises. Uh, He had a very significant, I think it was $43 billion uh, policy that he's put forward. And then we saw Tony Abbott come out with his proposal, which was a mix of a whole range of technologies, particularly utilising our pre-existing copper network, and that it would be fibre to the node. And I remember a particular interview of yours where Tony Abbott was uh, really put on the spot, clearly didn't know his technical Mm -hmm. uh, detail. And uh, he he said, oh, we don't want to put all your eggs in the fibre basket and that I'm no tech head. And then you proceeded to explain peak speed to him. Yeah, because uh, and I, I, I uh, had a suspicion that he uh, might not be actually across the complexities of the issue because it was one of the few launches of policy during that election campaign in 2010 that he stayed away from. Mm. Uh, so I took particular interest in that policy, which was and I think has demonstrated since was an inferior policy to the one that Rudd had uh, had begun to implement. And uh, 
Yeah, he, he tried to write off his ignorance on this issue uh, and the concept of peak speed was a pretty easy one to grasp, but even I could grasp that. And uh, he did make a bit of a fool of himself on that occasion. Mm. It seemed to me to highlight one of the key differences and one of the reasons why people got behind Kevin Rudd initially, which was that we had had so many years of conservatism and John Howard that a lot of younger people, I think, were crying out for a visionary leader who had a plan that was future-looking instead of just of the present. Mm. Would you agree with that assessment? Oh, I think uh, I think he certainly uh, he caught people's imagination and there was a sense of freshness about him and he was... Uh, I, I suspect that he had borrowed fairly substantially from the Whitlam approach, which was to come up with big programs... Uh, to have a rationale for those programs and excite people's imagination. And uh, and the um, NBN, the whole broadband issue, was one of them. And there was the... He was going to put a computer in every classroom in high schools. Uh, there were a whole... And, of course, climate change... Identified climate change as the great moral issue of our time, which indeed it was. But then, of course, that was one of the things that came back to bite him on the bum. When, uh, when <coughs> the politics became more awkward for him uh, after the failure of the Copenhagen uh, conference on climate change and he had pinned so much stock in that because the other side was saying if the rest of the world doesn't get its act together why should we and uh, instead of meeting that head on after Copenhagen and uh, and when uh, Malcolm Turnbull was replaced as leader by Tony Abbott and if there was one thing Tony Abbott was very very good at it was the it was the politics of negativity you know, it was uh, it was the endless pursuit of uh, Kevin Rudd and the Labor government, and uh, but but reduced to very simplistic terms: no new taxes, um, no arrivals by boat, and so on. And uh, and I think uh, Rudd was under pressure from within his own party. Julia Gillard, Gillard, it seems, was saying to him, "You've got to walk back from this," and he succumbed to that, which was the great fatal political mistake of his career. Yes. The public would not wear that. You know, you don't say in the one breath, this is the great moral issue of our time, and then in the next breath say, well, we're just going to... We did have this plan, but we're just going to put it off for another three years and we'll revisit it. Exactly. Didn't work. No, and he did really set up Copenhagen as a make-or-break moment, and he and Penny Wong were over there really trying to act as a middle country to negotiate. And in fairness to them, they earned the respect of the the others around that table, that big international table, including Obama, mm. uh, because they worked tirelessly to get that up. And uh, uh, then when it all came crashing around their ears, uh, they, they were left a little bit like the Emperor's New Clothes. Yes, and that brings me to one of the other key interviews you've done which has forever stuck out in my mind and it certainly did reveal Kevin Rudd the human because when he came back from Copenhagen and you really did highlight the fact that this is the greatest moral challenge of our time, you've said that and now um, what are you going to do with this Mm. ETS? And he basically got so angry and so upset that he said, you know, you don't know how hard Penny Wong and I worked. And it was just this moment of a crack in the... The the 7.30 report land comment. Yeah. You you sit here in 7.30 report land like it was some kind of oxygen tank but um, uh, two things about that the first is that that uh, when he did make the u-turn on climate change he was suddenly unavailable to be interviewed and penny wong his minister had to come out and cop it on the chin as she knew she would Mm. and uh, i did an interview i tried to get him he couldn't come or wouldn't come 
Penny Wong came on, she was like the sacrificial lamb, and she knew what was ahead. It was a tough interview. She didn't fear, I mean, you know, I think Penny Wong did as best she could. But I filed that one away, and I thought, um, this, is, this is a crack of weakness in your armour. Mm. You should have been out front uh, wearing this yourself and explaining it yourself. So I made a little pact with myself that the next time he was available to come on, he might have thought we'd moved on from climate change, but in fact I hadn't. And, uh, and so there was a quite tough interview there. That's the first point. The second point is that I actually thought that that interview would work for him rather than against him when, I, when we saw him actually display that kind of emotion uh, and that kind of almost automaton rud, you know, the, the guy who was never short of a word <laughs> and who was always very even-tempered in his pitch um, suddenly did show that kind of... He stepped out of that... Not quite, it's unfair to him to say robotic, but he, but he stepped away for one moment from his very controlled pitch and was showing a side to Kevin Rudd that I would have thought some people might have found a little bit reassuring. He really was like the rest of us. Uh, but um, but uh, a number of the media, possibly just uh, looking for a headline, uh, painted that as if, he'd, as if it was some kind of failure on his mm. part. And that's one of the things that's wrong with, with politics these days. Uh, politicians are not allowed to show uh, uh, any kind of uh, a variation of, of, of what we come to believe is their persona. Um, we want it always, really, as journalists. We want perfection, but we kind of want... We, we want not quite perfect. And if there's a ripple of excitement, we'll just, we'll just go for the moment and go for the headline and not really analyse it necessarily as we should. Mm. That was a terrible generalisation in a way. There are some fantastic journalists functioning today, but... But it's the 24-hour news churn, you know, where everyone's scrabbling to fill the space and not necessarily thinking with the depth and having the time to think with the depth that they once did. Yeah. I thought that was overcooked, the response to Rudd that time. No, I, I certainly didn't see it as a negative when I was watching it. I was just taken aback by mm. just how Showing himself he was. as a real human being. Yeah, <laughs> so rare. Not Mr Perfect. Exactly. And certainly... No one thinks he was perfect, and I know there were many cabinet ministers who certainly didn't think that way. But you do highlight in the book the fact that there were some key public servants who were being slightly more generous towards Kevin Rudd upon reflection mm. um, in the Killing Season documentary. I wonder how unfair we have been towards Kevin Rudd in terms of the spill that occurred and, and his behaviour. Mm. Oh, look, it's a pity he hasn't moved on um, um, more uh, he waited a long time to bring his two-volume autobiography out and uh, and in this most recent one, uh, he says it was a very small part of the overall book but, of course, it was the first part of the book the journalist went to. And the bitterness you can see, the bitterness is still there. It's time for him to move on on that front. But um, uh, whether we all treated Kevin Rudd unfairly is not the point. I, I, I think the real issue is how much of what was claimed against him was a genuinely accurate picture of Kevin Rudd behind the scenes. And it's not only senior public servants who saw things somewhat differently from, uh, say, Julia Gillard and some of her supporters in that coup. Um, uh, I can think of at least one very senior, highly respected uh, Labor politician who sat around that cab cabinet table through the Rudd years and told me that, yes, it was true that some senior people, including, you know, heads of Defence Force and so on, were kept waiting at times for hours to see him, uh, which was not good. 
uh, but that he actually ran quite an efficient cabinet process and was consultative around that cabinet table. Uh, and this is a person I'm inclined to believe. Hmm. Uh, so, yes, there were faults, um, obviously. And he, I think he was handicapped by a very young office. These were really talented people, but, they were, they, it, but in their youth, their relative youth, there was also some inexperience and at times a lack of wisdom, the kind of wisdom that only comes with earning the scars along the way. And, uh, and that was a part of the issue. Now, you know, you, you don't necessarily... I, I don't think you blame them. You've got a. Th- this was Rudd's decision to have that kind of office. And there was, um, within his office staff, there was no wise old head for most of the time. And I think that was a part of the problem for him. I also think that um, it was deeply ill-advised... Uh, for Gillard to um, to actually uh, listen to those people who were urging her to come along on the course that they then chose, and uh, and I think uh, that's a part of her legacy too. I agree, and it's something that I don't think is acknowledged at all at the moment. Well, uh, it came at a huge price for Labor mm. and a huge price uh, for people who had put their faith uh, in the Rudd government. And, uh, and I think that personal ambition, uh, personal ambitions and, uh, and some people's egos uh, who felt that Kevin Rudd wasn't paying them their due, due uh, attention, I think they got, got in the way. And, uh, and then, of course, Gillard herself uh, was turfed and Rudd came back and at least one of the same people uh, who had been a part of the process of installing Gillard was then a part of the process of uh, her destruction. Uh, and that was Bill Shorten. Yes. So, you know, that was a terrible time for Labor. Uh, and I think it, it's one chapter in the book, but it's a fascinating chapter to me because the patterns that emerge from it uh, in, in the kind of concentrated, easy to follow really, mm. but nonetheless concentrated way that that three years uh, is covered. Yes, and it's had many consequences, not only for Labor, but for the Liberal Party, as we've seen. It's become more palatable or acceptable for this kind of thing to happen. Well, neither neither palatable uh, (laughs) nor acceptable in the eyes of the public. No, no, I mean to But it's like because the precedent was there, Mm. oh, well, we can do that too because Abbott is uh, falling in a hole... uh, uh, when when they did actually throw Abbott out and install Malcolm Turnbull for his second stint as leader, you could almost hear a collective sigh of relief around the nation <laughs> at the departure of Abbott. Uh, and I think that uh, had he gone to an election, that is Turnbull, gone to mm. an election almost immediately after taking the leadership with that uh, kind of extraordinarily impressive performance in the courtyard when he announced his candidacy, candidacy for the leadership, I think a significant number of Labor voters would have taken a deep breath and voted for him. Um, but then, uh, but then he became a disappointment as well. Uh, then now we've got Scott Morrison, you know, and mm. uh, and it's like it's like uh, where are the people in this? That we've of the last five prime ministers to be dispatched, four have been dispatched by their own party, mm. and only one. The people have only been allowed to exercise their democratic right and dispatch one Prime Minister of the last five, which is an appalling indictment on our political system. Absolutely. Well, you, you mentioned Scott Morrison. Uh, he seems to me quite a retail politician in a way, and he's emphasising that by conducting bus tours and... Well, sort of <laughs> sort of bus tours. Ish. Bus Ish. plane tours. <laughs> <laughs> Hybrid. And for, the, for one... 
moment, suddenly the image of Billy McMahon swept before my eyes. Oh. Back, all the yes. way back in 1982. And uh, Whitlam dubbed him Silly Billy. <laughs> I, I think that was one low point in Australian political history, the McMahon years, where the mm. Liberal Party was starting to come apart at the seams and he became this caricature. And he, was, he became very accident-prone, Billy McMahon. And I just, uh, I just, I just thought the liberal, the, the the government had a McMahon moment around the bus trip. Yes. Well, you do mention in other interviews about our grasp of our history, and this book highlights that in the sense that, as you say, there are patterns and things that repeat themselves over time. And because if, we forget it, yeah, we forget the mistakes. We don't reflect and we don't remember. Mm. And you did mention that, obviously, with journalists, it's much harder to have that time for adequate reflection mm. with a 24-hour news cycle and different um, commercial demands, particularly mm. in the commercial media. Is there that potential for reflection? Because your time at Late Line, you say, was very important to you and you said that the highlight of the 90s for me will always be late line my six years with late line were as close as i've come to perfection in half a century of journalism Mm. and that really was a long form version of journalism where you had your entire focus on one one really important issue for half an hour yeah and half an hour of television is like uh, you know four hours of reading if you like um it can be an intrinsically superficial medium and very hard to get below the surface and build some depth. But, uh, but with that program, I know some people thought it was a luxury. I didn't. I'm, I mean, mm. uh, that program was gold uh, as, as, as a forum for quality discussion. And the fact that we were able to focus on a single issue for an entire half hour, whether we were interviewing three people, two people or one person, uh, we would set the set the issue up. We would we would explain its complexity, where it was complex, in a very short five or six minute piece, and then the rest was straight discussion. And thanks to the the dawning of the age of the satellite, we were able to tour the world and and access some of the great minds of our time. Whether it was politics, whether it was uh, philosophy, whether it was history, whether it was uh, uh, discussions about the digital age and 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 how and the social impact it was having. Uh, whether it was with some of the great artists of our time, I mean, somebody, somebody like the the great Oliver Sacks. He was a a psychiatrist, but he was also a beautiful writer. He was a visionary in his field. He was a great humanist. Uh, he he t- he told the story of mental illness in a in a wonderfully uh, imaginative way that actually brought us close to understanding it, but but actually seeing beyond the the that that part of it that people shrink back from and seeing the real human beings behind it and the kind of gifts that they often had to make up for the debilitating uh, mental affliction that they had uh, and this guy was just a gem and, and, and we were getting access to people like him in their various disciplines week after week after week it was wonderful yes. and, the, and the, audi- the audience loved it you know I mean <laughs> We had, we had well over a million people in Australia who regarded themselves as late-line regulars, even though each night might have only attracted 400,000. Mm. Across the week, easily more than a million people we were reaching, easily. Uh, and, uh, and I just think it's a, a, a travesty that the ABC has turned its back on that program. Yes. Well, it was groundbreaking and I did watch the first episode on YouTube ah. and I was amazed um, at the, the three different television screens in front of you with the different guests. But your introduction, you say, Welcome to Late Line, a program that promises something new in Australian television. You're 
prefacing the fact that this is a, a big deal and we've since seen late line axed mm. and many people outraged over that including myself because mm. i think it did offer something quite unique although as we can see based on your original format it certainly did veer away from that it became more of a news format whereas mm. we had a five there was a five minute late news that sat outside the program then we came to our well-defined half hour and uh and so uh, it it became a kind of uh, a wonderful, wonderfully stimulating escape for people. Or, I mean, it was very funny. One of the most common reactions I used to have was people who would say, well, Kerry, you know, great, love the show, but um, uh, often I would get up to go to bed and I'd just flick across to, uh, to the ABC to just see what you were going to talk about. And half an hour later I'd realise, you know, <laughs> I was still there. Uh, and that was the nature of the show, you know. It actually drew people in and it mm. gave them something. They actually felt that had a bit of a meal. Um, so I, I just uh, I puzzle over how people can make assumptions that because we are in this digital age of social media and many platforms of delivery, that, um, that there's an assumption behind it that people are no longer interested in that kind of depth in their busy lives. I would have thought we needed that kind of reflection mm. more than ever. I would agree. And certainly on this show, we get the biggest response for longer, more in-depth and yes. nuanced discussions. Yeah. yeah. And because that did come uh, towards the end of the day, um, and for many people it was the kind of signal of, uh, I'll watch Late Line and then I'll go to bed, <laughs> it, was, it was actually rounding out their day, even rounding out their week. It was giving them, it was giving them the chance to reflect. Mm, yeah. It was actually giving them permission and, and many people do feel that they, they are running so hard for most of their lives that to actually stop is a kind of, is a kind of weakness, which is very sad. And Lateline gave them permission to stop and listen and mm. watch and reflect. And when we stop reflecting, we're buggered. Yeah. Well, I think it was really a mental respite, a place where one could rest their mind and kind of... Well, know, they weren't resting their mind. They, well, forget, they were resting those things that were taxing their mind. Yes. And they were opening it up to something exactly. else entirely. Yeah, I, I guess that's the point of relaxing and being open mm. to new things. And you said that the true strength of journalism is it if it's informative and enlightening, and I think that is certainly what Late Line was. And, uh, and also, I think, the 7.30 report, but just in a very different way. And one of the things that I just wonder about, you were there for 15 years, <laughs> and you do say in the book, well, John Howard did take up a significant portion of those he 15. He did. Good or bad, but I, I did also look back at some of those interviews, and I could see your point about the fact that he did take up the space and try to create much longer answers in order to deflect some of the criticism that you were angling at him. Hmm. But how did you manage to direct a range of those guests, particularly politicians, who are likely to go on and on and try and get their point across when you're actually trying to reveal something? Well, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to uh, have an honest exchange for the public's benefit. Hmm. And, uh, I mean, what, what they understood about 7.30 was that... Um, in a half hour, which might feature a minimum of three, usually at least four, occasionally five uh, items, that there would be a limit in the time that we could allow for the interview. And that was a constant kind of struggle within the program. And uh, uh, certainly for, for John Howard, um, I wouldn't have considered anything less than 10 minutes 
as giving me any chance at all to keep him mm. honest. Uh, and uh, and sometimes they'd be 12, 13, and occasionally 15. And uh, uh, sometimes we would do the whole program if it was important enough. You can still chew up the time. The time is still going incredibly fast. And uh, yeah. and the press secretaries would always say, so how long is the interview? <laughs> and you would say, you know, 12 minutes or whatever, 10 minutes, 9 minutes. And they would plan uh, where they would talk long. Um, and John Howard was very good at that. I mean, a lot of other politicians did the same thing. Chew up the time. Yeah. If you're defensive, if you feel that you're in a defensive position, chew up the time. That was just one of the ways in which politicians would try to manipulate. Uh, the, and, and while chewing up the time, one of the ways they chewed up the time was to constantly and remorselessly repeat their message. Yes. The message of the day, you know, the propaganda item of the day. Mm. Howard was the past master at that. And it didn't take you long to work out what their message of the day was. Yes. Well, one particular interview that stuck out to me was in 2007 when he was on the nose and uh, was up against Kevin Rudd. And your first interview with him, he had announced tax cuts. Yes. And was saying, you know, the Australian people have earned tax cuts. We've modelled these so that we'll get the greatest workforce participation. This is great for the economy. And you were saying the only reason why you can give these tax cuts is because of a, a strong resources sector, Chinese investment and interest in our our minerals and he then went on and on and on about the fact that that was not the only foundation of our economy for a very long time. (laughs) (laughs) He also had had, uh, ways of uh, making it more difficult for the interviewer to jump into a gap in the answer if he was going on too long, jump into a gap in the answer to move it on to the next question or to come back to the question he wasn't asking, wasn't answering. Yeah. And I noticed at one point for quite a while there he would roll uh, between the, let's say, the, the last word of one sentence straight into the first word of the next sentence so that two words basically became one with no full stop in the middle. <laughs> Uh, and it seemed to me that there was only one reason for this aberration, and that was to because y- y- your automatic way of y- you might be sitting there waiting to come back in. Hmm. You would normally wait for the end of a sentence. So John Howard would roll his sentences together, and then he'd pause for breath halfway through the next sentence. Uh, I suspect, hoping that you wouldn't, you'd be taken a little bit by surprise by surprise by his pause there, and mm. you would miss the opportunity to jump in. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, it was very much a cat and mouse game, I must say. And was and he one of the better at that? Would you say? Well, he did cat and mouse very well. Uh, he, he had a kind of, if you again another another pattern that emerges not just through interviews but just through the way he would comport himself as prime minister around issues like. Uh, asylum seekers or um, um, various other, like the, the black armband view of history, the, the so-called culture wars and so on, uh, he, would, he would very carefully work his words uh, around the tricky parts of those issues. And uh, as a, for instance, when Pauline Hanson made her, first, made her maiden speech, where she revealed her true colours and uh, basically went after Asians uh, on Asian migration and uh, and uh, uh, on Indigenous Australians. And when John Howard was asked, as the furor mounted and uh, we were being judged harshly around Southeast Asia particularly, uh, and even John Howard's own senior cabinet ministers were telling him that he must he should speak more firmly about it, he was asked. 
So do you support um, Pauline Hanson's views? And he, and instead of saying, no, I find them deplorable, I deplore racism, he simply said, well, I certainly, uh, I certainly support her right to say them. So he was avoiding being seen to attack her directly because he did not want to put her supporters offside because they were, consti- they were conservative people and he wanted them back in his tent. And, uh, and the fact that he was not genuinely and seriously offended by the sentiment of what she was saying uh, and he had, a, he had a responsibility to lead the nation on that and he didn't. Yeah. Yes, well, the Prime Minister sets the tone and the, the example in terms of moral and ethical standards. Yes, you would hope. You would. One of the things that you mentioned uh, just earlier, and you said that TV can be quite a superficial medium, and you brought up right at the beginning of the book a very important point, which I <laughs> I'm admit I had been wondering. Is that right? I had, because I just admired it so much. But you say, let me get the really big news out of the way up front. I have never dyed my hair and it's not a wig. <laughs> I Which think part it, did you wonder about? The, I, dye, I the, the dye, dye or the wig? The dye. <laughs> it looks very real. I, I used to have copper hair myself, but not natural, obviously, and so I very much admired your hair. Well, <laughs> More that, you're that, interviewing, though. The point I was making up front, and perhaps in a slightly humorous vein, yeah. uh, was, th- was that this was just another symptom of how superficial the medium is mm. and that kind of celebrity side of it and people being concerned more about how you look than what you say. And, uh, and in fact, um, I highlighted in that sentence that, that, sentence that uh, I had one uh, newspaper television writer um, who came to interview me once very early in the 730 years who, uh, who, uh, whose first question was, do you dye your hair? And I said, no. And she said, do you mind if I look? <laughs> oh, gosh, that's a I bit said, much. <laughs> I said, well, if you must. And she actually came over and parted my hair and had a close inspection of the roots and mm. said, you don't, as if she was utterly convinced that she was going to find me out. And her nickname was the killer tomato amongst her colleagues because she had developed this technique, she thought, of coming up with the killer question first up to throw the interviewer uh, or the interviewee, rather, off their mm. uh, off their game. So, um, I'm sure it wouldn't have worked. But, you know, the ABC, ABC makeup artists, year after year after year, had to defend this question, does Kerry dye his hair? <laughs> I eventually worked out what it was. Um, because I was doing the program, we would take the program around the country through the various states, and uh, you can't have the same perfect... You might have your lighting set up on the same grid plan, but, but, but not every light in every city uh, was exactly the same. So the lighting, the lighting of the show in Brisbane might have been subtly different to the lighting in Sydney or the lighting in Melbourne or the lighting in Adelaide, and that would then bounce off my hair and it would take on different... Tones. Different tones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sort of sailing along semi-oblivious of all this, but... Um, no, it was said in humour and it was said to make the point. Yes. It is a superficial medium and too many people get caught up by the the kind of the showbiz side mm. of it. And it's a very good point. And it made me a little bit relieved in a way that it wasn't just women getting comments about their appearance. <laughs> Fair enough. Touche. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Kerry O'Brien, it's been amazing to speak with you and uh, I commend you on this book. It's really a, a great lesson in history. Amy, thank you very much, and you obviously did your leg work. Yes, yeah, I did, and, and I enjoyed it. Wonderful, thank you. 
You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. I'm really, really pleased and lucky to have with me now the General Manager um, of Collections and Access at the National Film and Sound Archive in Canberra. On the phone with me right now, Meg Lebrun. Hi there, Meg. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm good, thank you, and thanks for joining me today. How are you going? Look really well, and um, there's one thing I love, which is actually talking about the Heath um, exhibition, because it's, um, it's, it's all the things that you were just saying, um, and, and I think even more for some people. They, yes. they come out quite inspired from it. Exactly. It is inspiring. I was inspired by his career when he was alive. I was yeah. constantly astounded by his um, depth as an actor. Uh, the most really amazing uh, performance that I ever saw of his um, was, of course, The Dark Knight, which yeah. was just insane i couldn't like the and you can tell from this exhibition the depth of which he prepared for that role the sources of which he drew from to understand the mind of a psychopath was just phenomenal um so maybe we can start with that um given that is one of the core components of this exhibition is uh not only the films themselves but uh heath ledger's diaries and notes and workbooks um which are also on display as well as some of the most iconic costumes uh, that he ever wore and particularly The Dark Knight is a great example of that Um, and that was obviously towards the end of his career that uh, he was in The Dark Knight in 2008 and he passed away uh, also uh, around the same time in 2000, uh, sorry it was January 2008. 2008, Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I mean, I'd say uh, on top of what you were just describing so clearly, Amy, the, the exhibition, it's come together, it was originally pulled together in West Australia, where, where Heath came from, as a, a collaboration between his family and the West Australian Museum, and the particular curator, Alison Holland, who became terribly close with the family and really committed to... I, I suppose revealing Heath the person as much as Heath the film star, and and, and Heath the person is just fascinating because he's uh, he's a, he, he was he was dynamic, he was charismatic. I think he was challenging. He was also um, someone who seemed to draw creative people to him throughout his life. And and what you see in the exhibition are the memories that come from the family. So you've got, you know, there are Polaroids of him as a kid, but all the way through to the most fabulous portraits by um, professional um, photographers who were capturing the, um, you know, like the essence of the, of the man, and then all of the films. And then it's, it's his own excitement about photography, about filmmaking, about music, about people. And, and I, think, I think I'm saying perhaps some of the things that you were feeling, Amy, by the time you come out. And what I've been able to say many times is to people who've gone in slightly reluctantly because they didn't necessarily see Heath as you know, their favourite film star, but they've come out really touched by learning about Heath and seeing the talent that stretched across so many fields. Yes, well, I myself was a fan of Heath Ledger and even I was surprised and amazed at 
the uh, the type of films he was in that I had not yet yeah. seen uh, and wasn't even aware that he was in um, and have now a very long list of things to watch um, because they just... And there's, it's great that there are so many um, clips from these films that highlight some of the key scenes. Um, and one that really stuck out to me was uh, Monster's Ball and that yep. scene um, so intense where um, these prison guards are in this ex- very, very heated exchange, physical violence uh, ensues and you see this kind of breaking down of Heath's character um, in the bathrooms and uh, and there was just a really um, poignant note there um, on the, the wall decal about that scene and Heath's response to it. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how his roles affected him, the person. Well, again, yeah, if, if, if you work through the, um, the exhibition, you'll get a lot of the sense of that and, and it seems like, I mean, he was incredibly intense even though I think in, in, a, in a one sense he wasn't always taking himself massively seriously either um, and th- there are a couple of comments in the exhibition which um, you know make the point that at some stages in his career when he was working he was you know completely challenged by something that happened and wondered whether or not this was the end of his career as an actor um, But at the same time, you can then swing over to something like 10 Things I Hate About You, which is 1999, and and which is froth and bubble, but but again driven by the charm and the presence that he's had on screen. So I, I think... I think it ranges, in intensity terms, it ranges from, you know, extremes of pleasure to extremes of pain in the way that he was performing. And it does, it does, well, it's a fact that by the time he died, he was becoming, I think, increasingly fascinated about being behind the camera, Um, uh, you know, not so much being in front of it. And, you know, the, the, the sadness is that there were films that he was planning to, um, to, direct to produce and direct which he never had a chance to um to make happen one of the things i love um in the exhibition is as well as the um the objects and the clips and so on in the main exhibition there's um, a separate screening room that has the i think it's around about six music video um uh complete videos running which he either produced and directed or helped to design. There's one that was actually made after he died that he'd been working on. But um, some of them, um, there's one with Ben Harper called Morning Yearning. And um, in, in the film that we screen regularly that accompanies the whole thing, I'm his ledger, there's a little section which shows Heath pulling together the concept for the video with Ben and with the dancers and Ben Harper says that he's everything, he's the cameraman he's the director, he's the guy who's putting the smoke around, he's the choreographer working with the dancers and I think that kind of sort of powerful energy is what you keep on seeing and I think that comes back to what you were saying Amy that that powerful drive is also one of the things that kept making him confront himself throughout his career and I mean the guy he was only 28 when he died so so he's like a man who lived in the fast lane um Mm. and 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 was you know massively mature for someone who hadn't even gotten into his 30s 
Yeah, I, I couldn't believe um, the maturity and also the depth and breadth of his career within yeah. such a short period of time um, between, you know, I mean, I'm looking at his um, his credits here and, uh, they you know, start out in 1992, 93 with Ship to Shore yep. with smaller parts moving to sweat in 1996 which is an australian tv series to home and away um to raw and then we move into big american films like as you said 10 things i hate about you yeah um back to australia in uh we've got two hands back to a major you know movie such as the patriot featuring mel gibson um you know a knight's tale and and then you know so he kind of flicks between um you know australian production international production he he there's a theme around uh period dramas or period films um ned kelly as an example casanova um, and, and what was really fascinating as well was to see uh, the costumes that he wore, the props that he engaged with, such as these really um, old, ornate shotguns and rifles and, yeah. um, you know, the, the Ned Kelly armoury and, and how he uh, got into the Ned Kelly character and he clearly, you know, engaged in a lot of research in every uh, role that he portrayed. Um, and, I, and, and that really does... Um, it's high highlighted through a lot of these objects. I have a, I have a sneaking suspicion that he was a shoe man. Yeah. <laughs> because there, there are a lot of shoes that survived through, uh, there through are. the years. And, and I, I suppose an important point to note is that a lot of what's on um, display is actually part of what is being um, kept for his daughter when she grows up so um so that that's a, a poignant aspect to it but it's also um the fact that a lot of the things in the exhibition come from the wider family as well and um the, the family's um input into the exhibition i think is one of the things that makes it such a um a touching experience because you do feel you feel so much about the person as well as that really creative um Individual and, and as you were saying before, Amy, things like Heath's um, yeah, uh, work, workbooks, which is a grand term for an exercise book, that he he would actually he would just fill from end to end with some um, sort of flow of consciousness thoughts or cut out images that are inspiring him about the character that he's going to be playing or quotes of things that actually um, mean something to him in terms of how he's going to interpret um, a, a role. So it's yeah, it, it's 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 multi-layered, and I, I suppose I mean in a way some of the things I find most touching in the exhibition are the Polaroids from when he was a kid, um, and also some of the Polaroids that he was taking, as well as his really high-quality uh, black and white photographic shots for his own interest. But the Polaroids that he was taking of friends in his life, particularly in America, where it does seem like, um, he, 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 as I said before, he was a sort of a, a focal point. So a lot of, especially a lot of young Australians were coming to actually stay with him when they made it to America. And, um, and then he was working with other creative people in, in sort of artistic collectives throughout his life. Um, and it, it's like, I mean, when I was in New York earlier this year and um, had followed a, a hint given to me by Heath's dad, Kim, which was that just around the time he died, he'd been um, planning with a friend to set up uh, a 
sort of a cafe bistro in New York, um, which uh, Kim subsequently helped the, um, the, the partner to fulfil that dream. And it's still going now, so I actually got to go to it. And it was incredibly cool, mm. and I was feeling kind of like I was almost related to Heath yeah. <laughs> by getting there. But, but yeah, there's all those sort of um, connections. And, and by the feel of it, I think he was uh, someone who loved and was fascinated by people as well as had this drive about his own ideas about creativity. That's so true. And you mentioned there some of the photographs he took. He has yep. uh, had such a fascinating collection of um, cameras, really yep. old, um, beautiful cameras uh, that he utilised. Um, and uh, he... He took photos of people like uh, his former partner, Michelle Williams, uh, when they're in Italy. He took images, photos of Heather Graham, um, some that are a lot more abstract and artistic. Mm -hmm. Um, And and then those the beautiful photo of him with Matilda, his daughter, um, yeah. as a, a young child was also really moving um, and also highlighted, I guess, how tragic it is that she um, only got to know him in the early, early years of her life. And I guess it's really heartening to hear that these objects are being kept for her uh, so that she can have that closer connection to him. Um, but yeah, there are just, I mean, one of the things that I think comes out strongly in this exhibition is his uh his the fact that any actor but particularly he um would be his harshest critic uh and that he said in one of his interviews i feel like i'm wasting my time if i repeat myself i can't say i'm proud of my work it's the same with everything i do the day i say it's good is the day i should start doing something else so this is this this quest for perfection um which he he was yeah, he was he was driven, and um, I know um, one of his friends is quoted as saying that he he often would sort of point to the fact that he felt that he 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 didn't have enough time to be able to do everything. And um, I know again from his family, they they laugh and and say that he was really he was always driven. You know, didn't sleep very much, always had something on the go. It was you know just just um, you know constantly involved and engaged in something. So you know you you can always I suppose wonder about these things, but um, you know sometimes people do burn burn hard, burn bright, and yeah. burn out um, at, yeah, sadly at an early age. Yes, and um, we certainly know that he lost a lot of sleep and uh, was very, very hard at work uh, towards the end of his life. And, um, you know, he had set time aside to spend with his daughter and then um, got caught up in some really intense creative projects. Uh, So it seems like there's always that tension between his creative life and his personal life. Um, But there's one photograph in this exhibition. I mean, there are many that are illuminating of the different sides or facets of his personality but the one that struck me the most was Yellow Kitchen in 1999 by Francis Andrich and it is just so full of life and bounding of energy and and as it says on the decal um, that basically he uh, he created that scene himself in a sense he grabbed a saucepan from behind him and started swirling it around with energetic gestures and uh, and it was just so I think um, encapsulated what this ex- exhibition is about which is his creative energy and his creative drive yeah i'm glad you picked that one out because there are there are i mean there are some really 
beautiful, absolutely beautiful portraits in the exhibition. This one is beautiful in a different way because, as you say, it's like it's like there's light and colour and there's heat leaping out <laughs> from yeah, the image. Literally. And again, I mean, you, you can laugh as soon as you think about it because this is a guy who's got it all and who's, who's bursting with possibilities. Yes, that's absolutely true. Um, and I think uh, one of the other elements of this um, is the fact that he uh, his career had just been started to be recognised in a formal way um, through awards, yeah. uh, basically mostly posthumously, um, and and certainly for The Dark Knight, um, he received one of the greatest honours uh, for that particular role. And you have um, his trophies, uh, his awards in the cabinet there. Um, what are some of his major achievements? Well, I mean, he, he was actually... He was nominated for all sorts of things across the board. Um, let me think. In terms of Academy Awards, nominated for Brokeback uh, Mountain, won for The Dark Knight, was the Australian Film Institute Awards, which are now called the Actor Awards. Um, Brokeback Mountain, he won awards there. Uh, the Dark Knight. Uh, he won a BAFTA British for The Dark Knight too. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. But so... Um, Again, it's just so frustrating when you see he was just on the cusp of all sorts of things. The um, I'm Not There, he won uh, an award for just here mm. in the year that he died. Uh, it goes on, but, you know, many, many things. And you're right, Amy, at that stage he was, he was really established as a, um, a force in cinema and goodness knows what would have happened next. Yeah. I, I think that's probably one of the things that everybody comes out from the exhibition just saying, if only or what if. That's exactly right. And he mm. he was really recognised by his peers. You know, yep. that note from Christopher Nolan in his workbook uh, is just so amazing and really representative, I think, of what his actor uh, peers were saying about him. Um, and I think that was just so, so lovely. And look, something something that was really wonderful when when we launched the exhibition in um, it was in August, uh, we had Abby Cornish and, and Ryan Core here. Now Abby was in Candy with um, with Heath, and um, that they were that they were sort of bosom buddies. So um, so having her with us made a huge difference in terms of connecting again with the family, but also Ryan Core was one of the first people to receive um, the Heath Ledger scholarship support, which the family set up after Heath's death. So there we have, you know, one of the young young stars who's really making a mark now, who links back to Heath in that way. And Grace Woodruff, the young singer, was with us, who had been mentored by Heath. And um, at, the, at the launch, she sang a song um, uh, called H, which is about Heath. And you know how launches of exhibitions are kind of rowdy and yes. there's drinks and there's whatever else. It's when more of a social song, occasion. But, but, but when she sang this song, it was out in our wonderful courtyard mm. and there was just there was this sort of genuine moment of a sort of joint... Uh, Joyce, you can't say it was grieving because all of us don't know Heath to grieve about, but there was this joint sense of um, regret and I would say, yeah, love. 
Mm. And, and, and I mean, that was like one of those moments I'll never forget. Exactly. Yeah, I certainly think that um, there is some, there is a way that you can relate to Heath in this exhibition without not, mm. without knowing him. And I think it is a way to get to know him as a person. Um, yeah. So I think it is just so valuable uh, and really so well put together. Um, so I congratulate you and the team um, and all the collaborators on this project because uh, I came away feeling inspired, moved, touched, um, excited, energised. There are so many things that I think this does which very few exhibitions achieve. So um, oh, I really thank you. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. And we're open until uh, mid-February, the 10th of Feb. Yes. So anybody, come on, come on up to Canberra. And um, yeah, you'll be surprised and delighted. Exactly, and uh, and you are open every day, which is also fantastic. Nine till five, yep. Monday to Thursday. Nine till eight pm on a Friday, and yep. twelve till five pm on a Saturday and a Sunday. Um, That's right. So there's so many options to uh, to do that. It's in the Acton uh, area opposite uh, the new Acton precinct and it's within the ANU campus. Um, and one of the um, things that's also great is the screenings that you've got going on and the floor talks. Um, and there's still yeah. many screenings, film screenings to, uh, to go so people can align their visit with those. Um, and some of the ones that are less accessible to the public such as his earlier work on television um so that's really great to see and uh, and also there are floor talks um and what time are they on uh the floor talks well um uh the floor talks they tend to be i don't have that exact detail but they tend to be in the afternoons during the exhibition and we've got yeah we've got an evening with the curator which is in early December which the 8th will be fabulous. of December that will be, yeah. Yeah, 8th of December 5.30pm but I'd say keep an eye out on our on our website mm. because there could still be other things that might be coming up as well and you're right Amy just coming in and sort of getting um, absorbed plus grab a coffee or whatever and, and relax in the in the general sort of venue it's it's well worth it. And, you know, for the NFSA, Heath Ledger, um, a, a Life in, in Pictures, is our first exhibition in some years. So it's a real sort of flag to everybody that, um, you know, we're here, we're open, and we'd love to have you come and join us. Uh, that's a really wonderful point there, Meg, because uh, you run on the smell of an oily rag, essentially, and um, and you have had your funding cut many times, and um, and it's really is impressive that you have, um, you know, cr- created such a quality exhibition um, that is really, you know, one of the best I've seen, um, and and are still um, really run on on federal funding and also donations. So it would be great, um, although the exhibition is free for people to donate if they're able to do so um, financially because uh, it's one of those things I, I think is definitely worth paying for. That's a great idea, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> all, all donations, very, very welcome. Yeah. But, uh, but look, it's just the beginning and I think, I hope you can come back because there'll be other great exhibitions coming up in the new year. Oh, so uh, we, want to, we want to build and we want to make sure that people really see the National Film and Sound Archive as a place to come to as well as to discover online or, mm. or see examples of our restorations and so on at the cinema. 
Exactly. And you do do a lot of, um, you know, cataloguing and archiving of key film and sound items in Australian history. And so um, the NFSA has a very important role for researchers as well. Um, so, yeah, there's so many aspects to your role that is uh, really vital. And I'd be happy to come back to Canberra anytime because it is my favourite place to go. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed okay, my time you're there. On. <laughs> Done deal. All right, that would be really great. Next time, come and we'll show you around behind the scenes. That's oh. even more interesting. Oh, my gosh. That's, you've just described my heaven. <laughs> Thank you so much, Meg, for joining me today and thank you for sharing um, a little bit of insight into your exhibition and the life of Heath Ledger. And thanks for your interest, Amy. It's really important to us. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.